Good morning, everyone. Wow. I thought you guys were meant to be the noisy ones. Um, my name's Thomas. Um, I'm one of the elders um, in Village. It's a joy to be here. I don't get to be over in South as, as often as I'd like to be, so it's a joy that I get to see some faces that I do know and some that I don't. Um, as you know, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, last week, um, if not before, Elder presented you with um, this slide to which all the graphic learners in the room said yes and amen. Um, it's a roadmap in a sense. It shows us where we're going, where we've been, where we're going. Um, but it also does something that the English language sort of fails to do that the original text succeeds very well at uh, in showing the beautiful structure of the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll notice, if you kind of pay attention, there's um, the left and the right are like mirror images of one another. Um, and right at the top um, is where we are today. So I, I, apparently I've been given the unenviable task of talking at the summit. Um, so, but... Uh, as Elder introduced last week, um, these three, giving, prayer, and fasting, core practices of our faith as Christians, but core practices of the Jewish faith at the time. Um, but the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been challenging what we know or what we understand about righteousness. Um, righteousness, was, these acts when they are done, can be done in a certain way that lead us into greater righteousness. Um, they, they lead us in our sanctification process, sanctification being the fancy word for the process by which we become more like Jesus. Um, but Jesus was speaking at a time when these three practices were in particular, were being um, distorted, and they weren't showing what they were meant to show. So as in the whole Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is reframing righteousness. He's showing what it looks like. Um, and yet last week, we talked about what that looks like in terms of giving to the needy. Um, this week, we're looking at prayer, and next week, we're looking at fasting. So in terms of prayer, um, the rest of my sermon will go in Two, uh, there's two parts, uh, real easy, um, how not to pray uh, and how to pray. That's as simple a language as I can use. And so um, we're going to jump straight in. Um, let me pray for us one more time before we get rolling. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done, for your presence among us. Maybe not rush into this as a dead text, but as one that is living and speaking and breathing. Come, Lord Jesus, may your words be, uh, may I be speaking your words for the next um, few moments. Uh, may your presence be made truly known to us. In your name we pray. Amen. So first, how not to pray. Uh, pick, let's pick it up from verse five again. Uh, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the first way not to pray is like a hypocrite, um, at which point you might be saying, yep, nailing that, I don't even, I don't pray out loud in MC, let alone on street corners or in synagogues, so I am fine. That's not the point, and you know it is, you know it isn't the point. So the, the word here being used for hypocrite is um, from the same Greek word that, just, that the words actor or performer comes from. So whenever it says in verse 5 that the hypocrites love to stand and pray, they don't actually love to pray. They love 
the opportunity that praying in public presents to, wow, that's a lot of peace. They love the opportunity uh, that public praying presents to parade themselves. Do you like that? Peter Piper picked up a um, So they don't love prayer. They love to be seen to be praying. Um, they love themselves more than they love. They don't even, it's not even a case that they're indicating that they love God. They love themselves. And so as has been the case throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus going after here? He's going after our hearts. He's going after our motives, our intentions. Uh, we see what the, the intentions of the Pharisees are, what their, what their motives are by what they are rewarded with. Um, Jesus says that they have received their reward. If you're praying to be seen to be praying, they are seen. That's, they're, they're happy with that. They're satisfied. They've been acknowledged as being seen to have been praying. Maybe they get some silent applause or something. But Jesus is saying that's a total distortion of what prayer is. So how should we pray? Verse 6, when you go to pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, Jesus often uses, as we know, if we read the Gospels, um, Jesus uses hyperbole. He exaggerates um, to make a point. He's not saying go in total secrecy. That would kind of prevent the kingdom doing, from being kingdom-ish. Um, so he talks about secrecy as a contrast to showiness. So on the one hand, we've got the Pharisees who are showy. Um, but Jesus is, is contrasting that with secrecy. Um, and so Jesus uses that as a kind of a spectrum. It's more important that we go in secret, um, away from prying eyes, away from distraction, which probably today in 2019 means getting away from your smartphone. Um, that's as big a distraction as anything, I'm sure. Another translation puts this idea of secrecy. Um, your father in secret, secret talks about um, this... This lovely idea of your father who is in the secret place. Um, and the, the idea is that the secret place, it's, it's hinting at, um, a, a, again, another word that references a storeroom of treasures. So we're, we're encouraged to go to this place where there is treasure to be found. You see, prayer is about encounter, not performance. It's about relationship, not performance. As, as has been explained already, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just this set of to-do lists, um, like do this and you will be more like this. It's an encouragement to live in a particular way, yes, but ultimately it's pointing to um, Jesus himself. As you read this, we see a silhouette of Jesus, don't we? Um, and whenever we, whenever we read these first few verses, our minds might travel to the instances where we read of Jesus praying like this. How many times do we come across Jesus escaping the crowds? He withdraws from people. He gets up really early. He spends a lot of time in prayer, sometimes whole nights. Um, because Jesus is aware that nothing destroys prayer like sideways glances to those around us. And nothing enriches our prayer life like a sense of the presence of the Father. And so in this, we have an invitation. Jesus invites us to pray like he does. An invitation into a relationship with who? A father. An intimate one-on-one -on -one connection. How do I know if I was only to ever interact with my wife, Laura, in front of everybody and parade her, I'm not going to know her how I know my wife is through the hours um, we've spent together and getting to know one another. And that's the same, uh, it's the same 
story with us and our Father. So the way of the Pharisee is showy and selfish. The way of the Christian, of the disciple, is secret and godly. Don't be like the hypocrites. That's one way not to pray. So the second way from verse 7, when we pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So how to pray part two, um, don't be a pagan. Um, you're probably doing okay at that. If you think. So Jesus is speaking to a specific belief, a belief system here. Um, paganism is really anything um, that was outside of, um, anything that's outside of following the one true God. Um, and the pagan rule of thumb is much and more. Your sincerity, your devotion, your piety to God was measured by how loud you were. It was measured by how much you said. But really all this is, is a clamoring for God's attention. Trying to appease God with a pretty solid words per minute. Um, if any of you um, are familiar with the story um, of Elijah and the priests who would challenge him to prove which God was real, um, those priests were pagans. They would cut themselves. They would bleed in a way just to show God, like to try and get God's attention. The word um, most that gets talked about for this um, particular verse uh, in seven, empty phrases, it's like babbling um, on and on mechanically, just reciting words without thoughts because the more that you said, the more chance God will be looking at you. And Jesus says again, don't be like them. I can imagine him just screaming this, like you have a father who sees you, who is looking at you, whose posture towards you is like this with open arms. The Father is saying, I am attentive to you. I know your needs. I'm waiting in the secret place for you. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that the whole way through it, we're encouraged to let our words be few. Don't be people who talk a lot. And Jesus is saying again, that your words per minute doesn't matter here. That's not what gets you noticed by the Father. Your Father is watching you. He's waiting for you to come to him. And this is transformative. Maybe let me just be clear. Um, Jesus isn't uh, challenging persistence. That's not a problem. The very next chapter over um, in Matthew seven, in verse seven, there's the another famous verse about asking and seeking and knocking, emphasizing to keep on asking the Father. In Gethsemane, in the Lord's final moments before the cross, in, verse, in Matthew 26, in verse 44, it says, Jesus went away again and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. One of my favorite parables is in Luke 18. Uh, it's about a persistent widow. who It's a parable of a persistent widow who is hounding a king for justice. The story picks up in verse four. For some time he refused, this is the king, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. This is a king who couldn't care less what people think, but is giving in. 
And that's how we're encouraged to approach in prayer, persistent to our Father. So it's not persistence that Jesus is challenging here. It's our mindset. It's our understanding of who the Father is, of who God is. Heart posture is at the core of this text. We don't need to fight for his attention. We don't need to heap up empty phrases. We don't need to think that if we just get like a couple of more big words, sanctification, I heard Thomas say sanctification. I'm gonna use that in prayer and the Lord will hear me then, right? We don't need that. We don't need to babble over and over. He is looking, he is waiting. He is wanting us to come to him. Some of you might not think you're pagans, but you might actually fall into the trap of dismissing yourself of thinking that your father is not towards you. Um, if you feel like you're a burden, that's a lie. Don't listen to that. Your father is towards you. The etiquette is just, the heart posture is think of father. Don't worry about how or what you say. I think of my kids when they ask for food all the time. Um, we only recently translated uh, what Eden was saying as Aggie. That actually means hungry. We only recently found out, and she says it a lot. Because she doesn't say, do, do I not give her food if she doesn't say hungry right? No, I'd get my children taken off me. That's, it's the same with our father. He doesn't care the words that we use. He cares that we come to him. Let that sink in deep to your souls, church. How we get prayer wrong is when we think the right etiquette is needed. Um, maybe just a quick word on verse 8. Don't be like them. Uh, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Question might come then, why should we even express our needs? If God knows them already, what's the point? And that's, that's a good question. Um, and it leads us to the heart of the meaning of prayer. We don't tell these things because God doesn't know. Um, I, like I, with the story I just used, we think of prayer as a relationship, as an encounter between a father and a child. Um, I, th- this, th- this passage, the Lord's Prayer, is, you, we could spend weeks and weeks on this, and some of the um, most beautiful and intelligent minds in the kingdom of God have considered this and written scores on it. So, um, we're only going to scratch the surface with this, and there are a lot of things that a lot of smarter saints than I have said about it, and I will quote them a lot. So Martin Luther said this. He said, by, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are instructing him. We are instructing ourselves more than we are instructing him. So we're presented with two ways how to not pray. Don't be like the hypocritical Pharisee who praises performance just to be seen. And don't be like a babbling heathen who heaps empty phrases, who's clamoring for God's attention. Your father is watching you. Already, we've got some good news in here. Um, We could say a lot about prayer in general, um, and we will uh, in the future, but uh, we're going to stick, we're going to I'm going to do my best to try and not diverge from this text because it it fits within the context of the Sermon on the Mount um, beautifully and because it's gold, there is so much to be extracted from it. Um, But as you know, prayer is hard. Like everything I'm convinced is easier than prayer. 
I, the Lord knows preaching is easier than prayer. Speaking to your friends, speaking to your family, even you might find giving easier. You might even find fasting easier. Prayer is beyond any question the hardest and the highest activity of the human soul. And so because of that, it's a true test of our spiritual condition. Think of, let's little exercise. Think of someone you know who's really godly, really saintly, maybe a friend, family member, maybe somebody you've just read about. Um, I'd be willing to bet that a defining characteristic of that person is that they not only spent lots of time in prayer, but somehow enjoyed it. Like they might have actually delighted in it. This is Jesus, isn't it? Um, And I'm so thankful for the disciples and how seemingly thick they are sometimes. They see Jesus acting a particular way and they want in on it. So they saw Jesus withdraw so many times. They saw the prayer life he had. Um, And in Luke's account of the same passage, Luke um, prefaces this um, teaching with uh, the disciples asking, teach us how to pray because what we think isn't lining up with what you're doing. You're on like a different level. Um, thank goodness they did. Um, so we have this beautiful teaching. Um, so as we start to consider what this looks like, Jesus uh, doesn't say in verse nine, pray this, does he? What does it say? Pray then like this. So the first thing to note, uh, Jesus isn't saying pray this word for word. You can that's okay. It's actually, it's, it's a good practice to pray uh, old prayers. It, it does something to us. It gives us language that we might not necessarily have thought of. Um, but this is a framework. It's not a formula. Um, if just, when we fall into the trap of just reciting it mindlessly, we're falling into that trap that we just warned, we're just warned about in terms of paganism. Um, don't just mindlessly recite it. This is a framework. Um, it's to be considered and applied to our own lives with our own words in light of the fact that God as our Father wants us to come to him with our words. But this tool, this like skeleton prayer is, is, is incredibly helpful. Um, and just so you know that Jesus vouches for it, he uses this model himself. In John 17, in what's known as the high priestly prayer, um, the words of Jesus in the garden, um, in terrified anticipation of what's ahead in terms of his death, um, Jesus uses this model. Um, and excuse me, um, and that shows us that it's, it's good for us to use. It's for all Christians at all times in all places. And it's comprehensive. Um, the, the other thing, other maybe quick word before we really jump into it. The Lord's Prayer could be some of the most spoken words in the history of the world. Um, many of you might have been reared on it. <laughs> um, there's maybe, a, and because of that, you might grow, you might have grown over familiar. Um, imagine you go to visit a friend who happens to live beside a busy train track, and as you sit down with your cup of tea, you start to chat, the sound of impending doom starts rushing past the window. You're convinced the train's actually going to plow through your living room. You jump up in fright, like, what is that? To which your friend who's been living there for a while says, what's what? 
like uh, the sound of the train about to like career through this living room. Like, oh, you just forget about it. You stop hearing it after a while. Um, that's ca- kind of the idea of the Lord's Prayer. We, we've gotten so used to it that we don't hear it anymore. But everything we need for a rich prayer life is contained in it. So let's jump in. We've looked at how not to pray. Now, how to pray. So um, I know I just said, let's not do this, but we're going to do it anyway. We're going to recite the, We're going like, to recite it, okay? So on a count of three, let's start it, right? One, two, three. Our Father, who art in heaven. Okay, stop. Um, the whole point of this first line, our Father in heaven, is like a finger being pressed on your lips to be quiet. This is a moment where we're told to stop, to wait, to not rush in. Again, Martin Luther says in the beginning, the Father, in beginning with our Father, we are reminded not to plunge right into talking to God, but to first recollect our situation and realize our standing in Christ before we proceed into prayer. This is Jesus saying, forget work that's coming up, forget whatever's going on in your family. Forget, the, forget just for a moment that uh, Spurs are in a Champions League final, Tim. Just forget about it. <laughs> um, just forget about whatever TV is coming on tonight. Forget about any pain just for a moment. Just be quiet and listen. Jesus could have used anything to say, anything at all for us to address God we could have been instructed to refer to him as the supreme Lord of all creation with like a hundred other names that he is rightly due. But he uses something so personal, not abstract. We, we can only even say Father because of the work of the Son. Isn't that right? We, because of the work of the Son on the cross, where Jesus died, where he rose we're told that we receive a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So it's the work of the Son on the cross that we even get to say the words, Father. And the true essence of prayer, the essence of true prayer is found in these first two words, our Father. Take a moment, breathe that in deep because it's massive. Straight away, our Father, where in heaven? The other half of the recollection, our Father in heaven. It represents one where he is. Yes, he is governing in eternity in heaven. But when saying our Father in heaven, our heavenly Father, it also says who he is. It adds to who he is. He is our heavenly Father. He is not only good, but he is great. So in one line with four words, in beautiful economy, we are told that God is, a, is personal, not abstract. He is loving. He is powerful. He is not only good, but he is great. So this is how we begin to pray. Before we say a word, before we ask for anything, we put our prayer lists down and we realize this, that you, such as you are, are in the presence of a being who identifies as your Father in heaven. As Paul says in his letters, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just to remind us exactly who this Father is. Our Father in heaven. Then we move on. Uh, The rest of the prayer 
split up into two sections, two sets of petitions. Uh, the first three, you'll see, if I'm not sure if you can see that. So the first three petitions highlight uh, different possessive adjectives than the second set of petitions do. So the first ones, um, Tim, do I have this highlighted? I'm not sure if you can see that, but you see the first couple of lines, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will. And then in the second set, it's give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. And there's a significance in this ordering. What this is telling us is that God's concerns are given priority. And our needs um, are demoted to second place. They're not erased, and we'll maybe touch a little bit more on that in a minute, but they're in second place. So first up, hallowed be thy name. Quick show of hands, who has said hallowed this week? Yeah, didn't think so. Um, Partly because it's just an old word. Um, As you know, our society has no real appreciation for holiness. Hallowed is is the same word, at least a holiness, or this idea of being set apart. Um, The context um, of the Jewish culture in regards to naming is really important and kind of washes over us a little bit in 2019 in Northern Ireland. Um, The Israelites were rubbish at many things, but one thing they were really good at was having a reverence towards God's. Um, they, the name for, of the many names, there was this name Jehovah, um, which means the self-existent one. Do you remember how Moses, um, how the Lord revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush? He says, I am. There's something about naming in Jewish culture. Whenever God reveals himself as a name, he is revealing himself as the embodiment of what he's saying. So um, I've got a quick list of a bunch of different names that the Lord revealed himself to the Israelites in different times and different places to what they needed in that particular moment. Um, And every single, whenever he is one, that's not saying that he's giving up a previous one um, to become that one. He is all of these things. He is the embodiment of everything that we read that he says about himself. That, That sounds really philosophical, but are you tracking with me a little bit there? He is the very essence of what he says he is. So when I say I'm Thomas, that means twin. I'm not even a twin. Do you know what I mean? There's something about naming in the Jewish culture that kind of washes over us. So yes, some of the ones that the Lord identifies himself as, like I said, he he is I am. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, the Lord that heals, the Lord our banner, our peace, our righteousness, our shepherd, the Lord is present. In the use of Jehovah, the Israelites, they didn't even really like writing down the letters of Jehovah because they weren't good enough to represent God. Does that make sense? So whenever we see hallowed be the name, that's how they would actually refer to God as the name. Like Harry Potter kind of butchered that for most of us whenever it talks about, you know, he who must not be named, Voldemort, all that stuff. The Israelites were doing that like a long time ago, talking about someone who's not because of fear, but because of sheer holiness, because of sheer perfection. No letters or any arrangement thereof can, can describe or adequately convey who he is. So when we're saying, hallowed be thy name, we're not saying, hallowed be G-O-D. Um, we're, we're, we're saying, hallowed be 
you who are above everything else, anything that God is, we're, we're, we're proclaiming that as holy. Now, as we know, he is holy. So are, are we asking then for him to be more holy? Perhaps maybe think of it like this. Hallowed be your name is a missional prayer. This is a prayer for us to make, in us saying it, that, that's one thing, it's a declaration. But our prayer is that the whole earth and its entire creation would proclaim, hallowed be thy name. Um, so this is how our prayer begins. We recognize who our Father is and straight away we worship him. We bless him. We're to come with a sense of, yes, a sense of being a child to a father, but also a sense of reverence and holy fear that God is, God is so much more above any word that we can ascribe him. So that's the first petition. The next one, uh, your kingdom come. So if the first one says, God's name be made holy, set apart among all nations, the second petition, is, it's almost like it's saying that that isn't the reality. And we know that to be true, don't we? We know that all creation, we know that there are nations who do not, there are people who do not uh, hallow, do not make holy the Lord's name. And that's because there's another kingdom at work. And we know this, we know that Satan leads it and um, the fruit of it is sin and death and destruction. Yet God has been graciously pleased to reveal from the beginning of the dawn of history that he is yet going to establish his kingdom in this world of time. He will assert himself and turn this world and all its kingdoms into his glorious kingdom. We read in the Gospels um, that Jesus talks about um, his kingdom advancing and the, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Um, if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings uh, or Game of Thrones or, or anything that has like a battle, you'll know that gates are not an offensive like weapon. Gates are, are defensive, like they're guarding something. So in just even in that picture, God is saying, my kingdom will advance and no protective measures will be able to hold against that. God's kingdom is on the front foot, moving forward at all times. So what's the instruction? We are to be a kingdom-centered people. We've been told early in the gospels that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. We have to repent and believe Prayer then is to be centered on the king and his kingdom. This is a petition of lordship. It's about royal reign over every part of our lives. Emotions, desires, thoughts, commitments. We're asking God to rule so fully in us that we want to obey him with all our hearts in joy, not in grumbling. And that's the inward dimension. So there's one part of the prayer, your kingdom come in my life because if I'm honest, there's a lot of work to be done in my life. And we can all probably say amen to that. But there's also the outward dimension too. There's your kingdom come in all of society, in every city, every neighborhood, every home. The social dimension of seeing every, every ounce of suffering, injustice, poverty, and death coming to an end. You might ask then in following up, is God not already reigning over all things? And the answer is yes, he is. Um, 
But in the words of St. Augustine, I think I've got this one on the slide, God is reigning now, but just as light is absent to those refusing to open their eyes, so it is possible to refuse God's rule. The kingdom of God is what God wants. It's what he desires. It's the reign and rule and law of God. Um, Another old saint, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that the kingdom of God can be thought of in three ways. So it came firstly when the Lord, when Jesus came to earth, whenever whenever Jesus was walking on earth, that was the kingdom in breaking. Uh, It's visible in a second way in the hearts of lives of all who submit to him and believe him. So that's the church. Um, That's us. If you're in Christ Jesus, uh, the kingdom of God has been unveiled in your heart. um, And um, then in a third sense, it is yet to come. So we know Christ came from heaven to earth to found and establish and bring in his kingdom. And he is still engaged in that task and will be until it's done. And then he'll hand it back to the Father that God may be all in all. In terms of our own hearts, our petition is that we should have a great longing and desire for the kingdom of God and of Christ that it may come into the hearts of all men, all our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors. Um, it, and in terms of our own hearts, it, it's to the extent that we worship him, that we surrender our lives to him, that we are led by him, that, that's the extent that the kingdom comes in our hearts. So when we pray your kingdom come, we pray for the success of the gospel. It's sway, it's power, power, power. or if you're from Derry, power. <laughs> and then further still, in the yet to come nature of it, as Christians we know that the kingdom of God is in breaking now, but it's also not yet. We are looking forward to the day of the coming of the God. When we pray this, your kingdom come, that prayer is looking, is anticipating a day when rights are wronged, when justice prevails, when the Lord returns for all, when we might enjoy God's glory unhindered by death and by sin. This is, is captured at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. Um, surely, the son says, surely I am coming soon. And in response, the spirit and the bride, that's us, say, come. Surely I'm coming soon. The spirit and the bride say, come. What a flipping prayer. Who, like, who prays like this? Whenever you start to un, like, uncover this, like, oh my goodness, my prayer life does not look like this, but I want it to so badly, and it's possible. So then the third in this first section of petitions, uh, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and thirdly, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't really need as much explanation, I don't think. Um, in what the kingdom is, is where what God wants happens. Um, the kingdom of God is one where his rule is done. Again, it's a missionary prayer, isn't it? Um, if you've been around Village for any length of time, you'll know that it's our tagline, in Belfast as it is in heaven. It is the responsibility of the church across the world to pray this prayer globally, but, but it's also helpful to focus our attention on the local side of it too, isn't it? What would it look like if our city um, was transformed by the kingdom of heaven? Maybe something to consider in your MCs this week. 
So in heaven, the will of God um, is always being done perfectly. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine any scenario where what God wants doesn't happen. Um, we have this impression from Scripture that uh, a characteristic of heaven is that everyone and everything is waiting upon God and anxious to glorify him at all times. And this is what ought to be true of us. So we're looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness will dwell forever. But there may be some present implications of your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If his will is, in the words of Romans 12, good and acceptable and perfect, that means we can trust that whatever comes our way, right? Again, Martin Luther says this. I can't remember if I have this or not, Tim. Grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, sufferings and adversity and to recognize that in your divine will and that in this your divine will is crucifying our will our wills are pretty strong-minded aren't they i'm the most stubborn i don't like giving way giving ground but if we're in any doubt that this is a good and wise prayer to pray if we're in fear that our will being crushed or that our will being pushed aside for the sake of the Father's will is scary, know that Jesus did it himself. He shows that the Father is worth trusting because Jesus prayed this himself, didn't he? He sought the Father's will and it saved us. So Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Your will be done. So the first three petitions are all about God and his kingdom. So Jesus is teaching, when we pray, our innermost and greatest desire should be a desire for God's honor and for God's glory. We are a kingdom-centered people. Our culture has a habit of conforming us not towards God and his kingdom, but towards a kingdom of self where everything is bent in on ourself in our own echo chamber, where we're not concerned about the Lord's name, we're concerned about our name, our will, our empire. And Jesus says, no, that's not what my people do. It's about the Father's name, the Father's kingdom and the Father's will. When we begin to live like this, and it's hard, but as new creations in Christ, in faith, this is the path that we walk. As we live a life of kingdom-centeredness, it actually begins to heal us of our self-centeredness. Again, if you think about the most saintly people you know, how selfless they are, how much they seem to like, not care about their, themselves, but care about others. That line from Philippians, um, in humility, count others more important than yourselves. That doesn't make sense outside the kingdom of God. But in the kingdom of God, that's, that's like our currency. That's the fabric that we live in. So that's part one. The first three petitions are about God and his kingdom. In part two, the, 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 it transitions from you to us. And as it emphasized before that our needs are demoted but they're not eliminated 
To, to not mention them is as big an error as to spend our whole prayer lives dwelling on them. If God is our heavenly father, and he is, with his father's love, he is current concerned with his children's total welfare. Some of you might have grown up in environments where you're told not to consider yourself at all. That's not what the Lord's Prayer teaches us. There's an order to it, but we're not to forget entirely. Excuse me. So what are our needs? What do we need? Well, this prayer covers all of it. It's, it's comprehensive. It talks about our need for food. It talks about our need for forgiveness. And it talks about our needs for deliverance. Or put another way, body, soul, and spirit. Physical, mental, and spiritual needs. And first up is give us this day our daily breads. And again, the order is important. It doesn't, it could have started with spiritual. He could have started um, with, uh, what's the other one? With um, forgiveness. He, he doesn't, he starts with the body. Again, some of you might have grown up in environments where been told that your body doesn't matter, but that doesn't come from Jesus. In term, our daily breads um, is about not like our actual breads, um, although it, <laughs> maybe it is. Um, it's a metaphor for the, luck, for the necessities, not luxuries. Um, so because it's not just bread, there's a social implication to this. For all to get their daily breads, there has to be flourishing crops. There has to be a thriving economy. There needs to be good employment. There needs to be a just society. So in praying for our daily bread, in actual like, fact, we're praying against exploitation. We're praying for a prosperous and just society. I feel like this is my fourth or fifth time mentioning Martin Luther, but he said a lot of good things, so I don't care. We need wisdom to see that bread was a symbol for everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, a house, a home, a wife or husband or children, good government and peace. And that's not a comprehensive list. Anything necessary for us to live. Now, is God depriving us of our daily bread if one or more of those is missing? No, no but it's right for us to pray for these things. It's an expression of ultimate dependence on God. A God who normally uses human means of production and distribution through which to fulfill his purposes. One last little note on this. Give us this day our, what? Daily. Jesus is drawing our attention to a day-to-day experience. This prayer is immediate. It's not a distant future. Well, that is concerned in terms of like the kingdom of God stuff. Jesus is asking us to pray today for what we need. If prayed in the morning, give me today, Lord, what I need. If prayed in the evening, give me tomorrow, Lord, what I need. Something about the daily aspect of prayer that the Lord's hinting at here. Okay, petition five. Forgive us our debts. This can also, you also see sins or transgressions, take your pick, um, as we have also forgiven our debtors or those who sin against us or those who transgress against us. So our needs obviously go beyond physical, right? Uh, we have relational needs. 
And it's interesting that in our relational needs, Jesus frames them in light of forgiveness. He frames our relationship with God very tightly with our relationship with each other. So to clarify, this, this verse and the verses 14 and 15 at the end, um, which say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Um, again, it's this sense of hyperbole. Jesus isn't talking about our ultimate, um, our ultimate um, salvation. He's hinting at the fact that if we as new creations in Christ, um, if we have truly understood the forgiveness that he has offered, we will not be able to help but forgive those who offend us. And that the implication, the, 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 what Jesus is implying here, he's envisaging a possibility where we might just sin against God after our salvation. We might just sin against others. I don't, I'm perfect, <laughs> but you might right? Jesus rightly thought that, we, that the process, we are new creation, but we are working our salvation with fear and trembling, becoming this new creation, fully embodying, becoming more Christ-like is a process. It takes time and practice, and forgiveness is key to that. We are to constantly forgive as we remember the forgiveness granted to us He's not saying it's easy to forgive. And this is part of the role of community is to help convince us to do that whenever it's hardest. Some of you may have experienced unthinkable, unspeakable traumas. Yet still the Lord asks us to forgive. And sometimes that, like that doesn't take 10 seconds. That can take hours or weeks or months or years. But it's a process that we're encouraged, commanded to engage in. Um, maybe just like a practical note as you sin against one another which you will do I know you're not perfect as you do that be explicit in, in asking for the words forgiveness use language of the kingdom this is who we are use that language if someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness be explicit in saying that you do forgive them it's, it's, it's really helpful it's a good way to practice this maybe another note don't be easy to offend just don't be easy to offend. Don't hold grudges. Be really hard to offend. And you don't need to forgive people as much. <laughs> or when they do, they'll be really bad. Don't hold grudges. Okay, the last petition. Some people split this into two. Some people class it as just one. Um, it's irrelevant. I'm not here to debate that. Um, we've talked about our physical needs, our material needs. Uh, we've talked about our relational, our social needs. And now Jesus is talking about our spiritual needs. And again, it can, the language used can sometimes maybe um, distract us from what is really being said. Um, this is temptation in the sense of trials and testing. Um, and if, if we're familiar with the rest of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, it makes clear that being in trials is not only inevitable, but actually desirable. Uh, in James 1, um, the, I think I have that on the screen. Um, James 1 in verses 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers. 
Not like partially. All joy, it's, it's, it's yeah, serious language. Kind of all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we know, and we've, we talk about this a lot, suffering and difficulty, it's like a furnace that burns off the impurities in our life. And they bring us into greater self-knowledge, humility, durability, faith, and love. If we, you all know Lucas, it's been deeply challenging to watch him go through a process of being told he has cancer, of it happening to hit the very place of his body that he uses for his vocation in his throat. But if you watched him closely, he didn't forsake the Lord. He, he drew closer doesn't make sense in the kingdom of this world, Lucas's actions. Or maybe you know other saints who've suffered throughout their lives in various different ways. It doesn't make sense in this kingdom, but in the kingdom of God, it makes perfect sense. There's a closeness that the Lord reveals. There's parts of our life that we don't like it burned off through that. So whenever we're saying, praying, lead us not into temptation, way of thinking about that is not into temptation, not being led into, entering into temptation, um, not to entertain and consider the prospect of giving in to sin. Um, another quote from St. Augustine, whose full name I only found out this week is St. Augustine of Hippo. Um, I wasn't going to say that because I thought it might just distract you, but there you go. Um, it's a good job. He's just usually known as St. Augustine. So St. Augustine of Hippo said, the prayer, is not that we should be, the prayer is not that we should not be tempted, but that we should not be brought into temptation. Do you see where that diverges? It's not that we're not to be tempted, but that we don't enter into it. And then the seventh petition, or the second half of the sixth petition, deliver us from evil. So maybe one way of thinking about the first half of this, um, lead us not into temptation. The first half is about um, deliverance from the remaining evil that's inside of us that we know we get frustrated with. Um, this half of it, but delivers from evil, maybe as a way of framing that, is the evil that exists outside of us, and there is much of it. Malignant forces in this world which bid us harm, which is led by Satan and his kingdom. Um, this petition is directed against the specific evils that emanate from the devil's kingdom, poverty, dishonor, death, in short, everything that threatens our bodily welfare. So with this, Jesus is telling us, with this last line, Jesus is telling us, do not allow us, uh, do not allow us to be so led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. Let me say that again. It's, this is just like a, a paraphrase of that. Do not allow us to be so led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. We can infer that the devil, that Satan is too strong for us. We are too weak to stand up with him, but our heavenly father will deliver us when we call upon his name. So we have our physical needs, we have our social, relational, our spiritual, our moral needs all prayed for. Then I say this was comprehensive. 
What a prayer. All of our human needs covered. When we pray like this, our express, we're expressing a dependence on God in every single area of our life. Or maybe another way to, to frame it that I found quite lovely was an idea of the, a Trinitarian understanding. It's no bad thing if we're to devote our attention to trying to understand that more, even though we'll fail ultimately, but it's, it's beautiful to think of it in this way. The Father's creation and the providence that we receive our daily bread, it's what he created that sustains us. We have the Son's atoning death that we, that we may be forgiven and therefore have the power to forgive those around us. And we have the Spirit's indwelling power that we are rescued from the evil one. To bring this plane into land, as I heard someone say recently, they made me lol. Some manuscripts, um, not the best, admittedly, some of the ancient manuscripts end um, with a doxology. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, it's not, it doesn't really matter that it's not in your Bibles. That can sound heretical. Um, I'm not saying that what's, ignore what's in your Bibles. Hey, Elder's not here. Let's get heretical. Um, no, not at all. It's, it is a right and proper response. Whenever we pray this, when we pray these, this framework in our life with our own words, the natural response, let me just read it again quickly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How can we not circle back to thanksgiving and praise? How can we not just erupt in praise and praying um, that his name would be glorified again? We praise his name. We pray, pray it be praised everywhere. We pray his kingdom come. We pray his will be done in every heart, in every home, in every city, in every nation. We consider our needs, our dependence on him utterly. From physical to relational to spiritual, we need him for everything. And we end as we begin by praising yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. It's a measure of our spirituality is how much praise is on our lips and in our prayers. We have as our Father one who can keep us from the, the kingdom of destruction of sin and death. He can keep us from ourselves. So it is right and proper that in the end we say yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory forever for all time and ever and ever and ever and ever. Do you sense that? Like, the, uh, hoping in some way that the Lord's been able to use my inadequate words to encourage you that as you read the Lord's Prayer, your heart's stirred to affection because it remembers who He is. Our heart posture is challenged in the beginning. We see what He is about in terms of the spread of His kingdom. We remember our needs and we are satisfied in Him. That's who our Father is.